0: Welcome to Strangely's Reading of Moby Dick. For an explanation of this project and its rationale, please see the Strangely's Moby Dick, and Introduction episode of this podcast. Trigger Warning Moby Dick, like many of us, was created prior to 2019. As such, it may contain language, ideas, and situations which might not be up to the standards of the modern reader. Furthermore, it's about muscular semen hunting creatures that are remarkably phallic in shape. It's gonna get sweaty. Strangely Presents an unabridged audiobook of Moby Dick or The Whale by Herman Melville. Part 17. Chapter 127 The Deck the coffin laid upon two line tubs between the vice bench and the open hatchway the carpenter cocking it seems the string of twisted oakum slowly unwinding from a large roll of it placed in the bosom of his frock ahab comes slowly from the cabin gangway and hears pip following him back lad i will be with ye again presently he goes
1: not this hand complies with my humor more genially than that boy middle aisle of a church what's there life buoy sir mr starbucks orders oh look sir beware that hatchway thank you man thy coffin lies handy to the vault sir the hatchway oh so it does sir so it does art thou not the leg maker look do not this stump come from thy shop i
0: believe it did sir does the ferrule stand sir well enough but art thou not also the undertaker? Aye, sir, I patched up this thing here as a coffin for Queequeg, but they've sent me now down to turning it into something else. Then tell me, art thou not an errant, all-grasping, intermeddling,
1: monopolizing, heathenish old scamp to be one day making legs and the next day coffins to clap them in, and yet again life buoys out of those same coffins? Thou art as unprincipled as the gods and as much of a jack-of-all-trades." But I do not
0: mean anything,
1: sir. I do, as I do.
0: The gods again, hark
1: ye. Dost thou not ever sing, working about a coffin? The titans, they say, hum snatches when chipping out the craters for volcanoes. And the grave digger in the play
0: sings spade in hand. Dost thou never? Sing, sir? Do I sing? Oh, I'm indifferent enough, sir, for that. But the reason why the gravedigger made music must have been because there was none in his spade, sir but the caulking mallet is
1: full of it. Hark to it. Eh, that's because the lid there is a sounding board, and what all things makes the sounding board is this. There's naught beneath. And yet, a coffin with a body in it rings pretty much the same carpenter. Hast thou ever helped carry a beer and heard a coffin knock against a churchyard gate going in? Faith, sir, I've... Faith? What's that? Why, faith, sir, it's only a sort of exclamation, like... That's all, sir. Hm mm-hmm. Go on. I was about to say, sir, that art thou a silkworm? Dost thou spin thy own shroud out of thyself? Look at thy bosom, dispatch, and get these traps out of sight.
0: He goes aft. That was sudden, though. But squalls come sudden in hot latitudes. I've heard that the Isle of Albemarle, one of the Galapagos, is cut off the equator right in the middle. He goes aft. That was sudden now, but squalls come sudden in hot latitudes. I've heard that the Isle of Albemarle, one of the Gallipagos, is cut by the equator right down the middle. Seems to me some sort of equator cuts yon old man too, right
1: in his middle. He's always under the line, fiery hot, I tell ye. He's looking this way. Come, Oakham, quick. Here we go again. This wooden mallet is the cork, and I'm the professor of musical glasses. Tap, tap. Ahab, to himself, there's a sight, there's a sound, the grey-headed woodpecker tapping the hollow tree. Blind and dumb might well be envied now. See, that thing rests on two line tubs full of tow lines A most malicious wag, that fellow, rat-tat. So man's seconds tick. Oh, how immaterial are all materials. What things real are there but imponderable thoughts? Here now's the very dreaded symbol of grim death, by mere hap made the expressive sign of the help and hope of most endangered life. A life buoy of a coffin. Does it go further? Can it be that in some spiritual sense the coffin is, after all, but an immortality preserver? I'll think of that. But no, so far gone am I that the dark side of earth, its other side, the theoretic bright one, seems but uncertain twilight to me. Will ye never have done, carpenter, with that accursed sound? I go below. Let me not see that thing when I return again. Now then, Pip, we'll talk this over. I do suck most wondrous philosophies from thee. Some unknown conduits from the unknown worlds must
0: empty into thee. Chapter 128. The Pequod Meets the Rachel Next day, a large ship, the Rachel, was described bearing directly down upon the Pequod, all her spars thickly clustered with men. At the time, the Pequod was making good speed through the water, but as the broad-winged windward stranger shot nigh to her, the boastful sails all fell together as blank bladders that are burst, and all life fled from the smitten hull. "'Bad news. She brings bad news,' muttered the old manxman. But ere her commander, who with trumpet to mouth stood up in his boat, ere he could hopefully hail, Ahab's voice was heard. "'Hast seen the white whale?' Oy, yesterday! Have you seen a whale boat adrift? Throttling his joy, Ahab negatively answered this unexpected question and would have fain boarded the stranger when the stranger captain himself, having stopped his vessel's way, was seen descending her side. A few keen pulls and his boat hook soon clinched the Pequod's main chains and he sprang to the deck. Immediately he was recognized by Ahab for a Nantucketer he knew, but no formal salutation was exchanged where was he not killed not killed cried ahab closely advancing how was it it seemed that somewhat late on the afternoon of the day previous while three of the strangers boats were engaged with a shoal of whales which had led them some four or five miles from the ship And while they were yet in swift chase to windward, the white hump and head of Moby Dick had suddenly loomed up out of the water, not very far to leeward, whereupon the fourth rigged boat, a reserved one, had been instantly lowered in chase. After a keen sail before the wind, this fourth boat, the swiftest keeled of all, seemed to have succeeded in fastening, at least as well as the man at the masthead could tell anything about it. In the distance, he saw the diminishing dotted boat, and then a swift gleam of bubbling white water, and after that, nothing more. Whence it was concluded that the stricken whale must have indefinitely run away with his pursuers, as often happens. There was some apprehension, but no positive alarm as yet. The recall signals were placed in the rigging, darkness came on, and forced to pick up her three far-to-windward boats, ere going in quest of the fourth one in the precisely opposite direction, the ship had not only been necessitated to leave that boat to its fate till near midnight, but for the time to increase her distance from it. But the rest of her crew, being at last safe aboard, she crowded all sail, stunsel on stunsel, after the missing boat. Kindling a fire in her tripods for a beacon and every other man aloft on the lookout. But though when she had thus sailed a sufficient distance to gain the presumed place of the absent ones when last seen, though she had paused her lower spar boats to pull all around her, and not finding anything had again dashed on, again paused and lowered her boats, and though she had thus continued doing till daylight, yet not the least glimpse of the missing keel had been seen. The story told, the stranger captain immediately went on to reveal his object in boarding the Pequod. He desired that ship to unite with his own in the search, by sailing over the sea some four or five miles apart on parallel lines and so sweeping a double horizon, as it were. Oh, wait for something now, whispered Stubb to Flask,
1: that someone in that missing boat wore off that captain's best coat Mayhap his watch. He's so cursed anxious to get it back. "'Whoever heard of two pious whale-ships cruising after one missing whale-boat in the height of the whaling season? "'See, flask! Only now see how pale he looks, pale in the very buttons of his eyes.
0: "'Look, it wasn't a coat. It must have been the—' "'Me boy. Me own boy is among them. For God's sake, I beg. I conjure!' "'Here exclaimed the stranger captain to Ahab, who thus far had but icily received his position. "'For eight and forty hours let me charter your ship.' I will gladly pay for it and roundly pay for it, if there be no other way. For eight and forty hours only—only only that you must, oh, you must—and you shall do this thing. The sun!' cried, "Stub, oh, so the son is lost. I take
1: back the coat and watch. What says I say have? We must save that boy.
0: He's drowned with the rest of them last night," said the old manx sailor standing behind them. "I heard, all of ye heard their spirits." Now, as it shortly turned out, what made this incident of the Rachels the more melancholy was the circumstance that not only was one of the captain's sons among the number of the missing boat's crew, but among the number of the other boat's crews at the same time, but on the other hand, separated from the ship during the dark vicissitudes of the chase, there had been still another son, as that for a time the wretched father was plunged to the bottom of the cruellest perplexity which was only solved for him by his chief mates instinctively adopting the ordinary procedure of a whale ship in such emergencies, that is, when placed between jeopardizing but divided boats, always to pick up the majority first. But the captain, for some unknown constitutional reason, had refrained from mentioning all this, and not till forced to it by Ahab's iciness did he allude to his one yet missing boy, a little lad but twelve years old whose father, with the earnest but unmisgiving hardihood of a Nantucketer's paternal love, had thus early sought to initiate him into the perils and wonders of a vocation almost immemorially the destiny of all his race. Nor does it unfrequently occur that Nantucket captains will send a son of such tender age away from them for a protracted three or four years voyage in some other ship than their own, so that their first knowledge of a whaleman's career shall be unenervated by any chance display of a father's natural but untimely partiality, or undue apprehensiveness and concern. Meanwhile, now the stranger was still beseeching his poor boon of Ahab, and Ahab stood like an anvil receiving every shock, but without the least quivering of his own. I will not go, said the stranger, till you say A to me. "'Do to me as you would have me do to you in the like case, "'for you, too, have a boy, Captain Ahab, "'though but a child and nestled safely at home now, "'a child of your old age, too. "'Yes, yes, you relent, I see it. "'Run, run, men, now, and stand by to square in the yards.' "'Avast!' cried Ahab. "'Touch not a rope-yarn.' "'Then, in a voice that prolongingly moulded every word, "'Captain Gardener, I will not do it. "'Even now I lose time.'
1: "'Good-bye, good-bye, God bless ye man, and may I forgive myself, but I must go. "'Mr. Starbuck, look at the binnacle watch, and in three minutes from this present instant warn off all strangers, then brace forward again, and let the ship sail as
0: before.' "'Hurriedly turning with averted face, he descended into his cabin, "'leaving the strange captain transfixed at his unconditional and utter rejection of so earnest a suit.' But starting from his enchantment, Gardiner slowly hurried to the side, more fell than stepped into his boat and returned to his ship. Soon the two ships diverged their wakes, and long as the strange vessel was in view, she was seen to yaw hither and thither at every dark spot, however small on the sea. This way and that her yards were swung round, starboard and larboard she continued to tack, Now she beat against a head sea, and again it pushed her before it, while all the while her masts and yards were thickly clustered with men, as three tall cherry trees when the boys are cherrying among the boughs. But by her still halting course and winding woeful way, you plainly saw that this ship that so wept with spray still remained without comfort. She was Rachel, weeping for her children, because they were not. Chapter 129. The Cabin. Ahab, moving to go on deck, Pip catches him by the hand to follow. Lad, lad, I tell
1: thee thou must not follow Ahab now. The hour is coming when Ahab would not scare thee from him, yet would not have thee by him. There is that in thee, poor lad, which I feel too curing to my malady, like cures like. And for this hunt my malady becomes my most desired health. Do thou abide below here, where they shall serve thee, as thou wert the captain. Hey, lad, thou shalt sit here in my own screwed chair. Another screw to it thou must be.
0: No, no, no. Ye have not a whole body, sir. Do but use poor me for your one lost leg. Only tread upon me, sir. I ask no more, so I remain a part of ye.
1: Oh, spite of a million villains, this makes me a bigot in the fearless fidelity of man. And a black... And crazy, but methinks like cures like applies to him too. He grows so sane again.
0: They tell me, sir, that Stubb did once desert poor little Pip, whose drowned bones now show white for all the blackness of his living skin. But I will never desert ye, sir, as Stubb did him. Sir, I must go with ye.
1: If thou speakest thus to me much more, Ahab's purpose keels up in him. I tell thee no, it cannot be.
0: Oh, good master, master, master.
1: Weep so, and I will murder thee. Have a care, for Ahab too was mad. Listen, and thou wilt often hear my ivory foot upon the deck, and still know that I am there. And now I quit thee. Thy hand met. True art thou, lad, as the circumference to its center. So God forever bless thee. And if it come to that, God forever save thee.
0: Let what will befall. Ahab goes. Pip steps one step forward here he this instant stood i stand in his air but i'm alone now we're even poor pip here i could enduring it but he's missing pip pip ding dong ding who's seen pip he must be up here let's try the door what neither lock nor bolt nor bar and yet there's no opening it it must be the spell he told me to stay here eh and told me this screwed chair was mine here, then, I'll seat me, against the transom, in the ship's full middle, all her keel and her three masts before me, here our old sailors say, in their black seventy fours great admirals sometimes sit at table, and lord it over rows of captains and lieutenants. Ha! Huh, what's this? Epaulettes, epaulets, the epaulets all come crowding. Pass round the decanters. Glad to see ye fill up, monsieurs. What an odd feeling now, when a black boy's host to white men with gold lace upon their coats. Monsieurs, have you seen one pip? A little negro lad, five feet high, hangdog look, and cowardly, jumped from a whaleboat once. S- seen him? N- no? Well, then, fill up again, captains, and let's drink. Shame upon all cowards. I name no names. Shame upon them. Put one foot upon the table. Shame upon all cowards. Psst, above there I hear ivory. Oh, master, master. I am indeed downhearted when you walk over me, but here I'll stay. Though this stern strikes rocks, and they bulge through, the oysters come to join me. Chapter 130. The Hat. And now that at the proper time and place, after so long and wide a preliminary cruise, Ahab, all other whaling waters swept, seemed to have chased his foe into an ocean fold, to slay him the more securely there, Now that he found himself hard by the very latitude and longitude where his tormenting wound had been inflicted, now that a vessel had been spoken which on the very day preceding had actually encountered Moby Dick, And now that all his successive meetings with various ships contrastingly concurred to show the demoniac indifference with which the white whale tore his hunters, whether sinning or sinned against, now it was that there lurked a something in the old man's eyes which it was hardly sufferable for feeble souls to see. As the unsettling polar star which through the livelong arctic six months' night sustains its piercing, steady central gaze, so Ahab's purpose now fixedly gleamed down upon the constant midnight of the gloomy crew. It domineered above them so that all their bodings, doubts, misgivings, fears were fain to hide beneath their souls, and not spout forth a single spear or leaf. In this foreshadowing interval, too, all humor, forced or natural, vanished. Stub no more strove to raise a smile, Starbuck no more strove to check one. Alike joy and sorrow, hope and fear Seemed ground to finest dust, and powdered, For the time in the clamped mortar of Ahab's iron soul. Like machines, they dumbly moved about the deck, ever conscious that the old man's despot eye was on them. But did you deeply scan him, in his more secret and confidential hours, when he thought no glance but one was on him, then you would have seen that even as Ahab's eyes so awed the crews, the inscrutable Parsi's glance awed his, or somehow, at least in some wild way, at times affected it. Such an added gliding strangeness began to invest the thin fidala now, such ceaseless shudderings shook him that the men looked dubious at him, half uncertain as it seemed whether indeed he were a mortal substance or else a tremendous shadow cast upon the deck by some unseen being's body, and that shadow was always hovering there for not by night even had Fadala ever certainly been known to slumber or go below. He would stand still for hours, but never sat or leaned. His wan but wondrous eyes did plainly say, We two watchmen never rest. Nor at any time, by night or day, could the mariners now step upon the deck unless Ahab was before them, either standing in his pivot hole or exactly pacing the planks between two undeviating limits, the mainmast and the mizzen, or else they saw him standing in the cabin scuttle. His living foot advanced upon the deck as if to step. His hat slouched heavily over his eyes, so that, however motionless he stood, however the days and nights were added on, that he had not swung in his hammock. Yet, hidden beneath the slouching hat, they could never tell unerringly whether, for all this, his eyes were really closed at times, or whether he was still intently scanning them. No matter, though he stood so in the scuttle for a whole hour on a stretch, and the unheated night damp gathered in the beads of dew upon that stone carved coat and hat the clothes that night had wet the next day's sunshine dried upon him and so day after day and night after night he went no more beneath the planks whatever he wanted from the cabin that thing he sent for he ate in the same open air that is his two only meals breakfast and dinner supper he never touched Nor reaped his beard, which darkly grew, all gnarled, as unearthed roots of trees blown over, which still grow idly on at naked base, though perished in the upper verdure. But though his whole life was now become one watch on deck, and though the Parsi's mystic watch was without intermission as his own, yet these two never seemed to speak, one man to the other, unless at long intervals some passing unmomentous matter made it necessary. Though such a potent spell seemed secretly to join the twain openly and to the awestruck crew, they seemed pole like asunder. If by day they chanced to speak one word, by night dumb men were both, so far as concerned the slightest verbal interchange. At times, for longest hours, without a single hail, they stood far parted in the starlight, Ahab in his scuttle, the Parsi by the mainmast, but still fixedly gazing upon each other as if in the Parsi Ahab saw his forethrown shadow, in Ahab the Parsi his abandoned substance. And yet, Somehow did Ahab, in his own proper self, as daily, hourly, and every instant commandingly revealed to his subordinates, Ahab seemed an independent lord, the Parsi but his slave. Still again, both seemed yoked together, and an unseen tyrant driving them, the lean shade siding the solid rib. For be this Parsi what he may, all rib and keel was solid Ahab. At the first faintest glimmering of the dawn, his iron voice was heard from aft,
1: MEN THE mastheads,
0: And all through the day, till after sunset and after twilight, the same voice every hour at the striking of the helmsman's bell was heard. What do you see? Sharp! Sharp! But when three or four days had slided by, after meeting the child-seeking Rachel, and no spout had yet been seen, the monomaniac old man seemed distrustful of his crew's fidelity. At least of nearly all except the pagan harpooners, he seemed to doubt, even whether Stub or Flask might not willingly overlook the sight he sought. But if these suspicions were really his, he sagaciously refrained from verbally expressing them, however his actions might seem to hint them. I will have the first sight of the whale myself, he said. Hey, Ahab must have the doubloon. And with his own hands he rigged a nest of basketed bowlines, and sending a hand aloft with a single-sheaved block to secure to the mainmasthead, head he received the two ends of the downward-reeved rope, and attaching one to his basket, prepared a pin for the other end, in order to fasten it at the rail. This done, with that end yet in his hand, and standing beside the pin, he looked round upon his crew, sweeping from one to the other, pausing his glance long upon Dago, Queequeg, Tashtigo, but— shunning Fidala, and then settling his firm, relying eye upon his chief mate, said, Take the rope, sir. I give it into thy hands, Starbuck. Then, arranging his person in the basket, he gave the word for them to hoist him to his perch. Starbuck being the one who secured the rope at last and afterwards stood near it, and thus with one hand clinging round the royal mast, Ahab gazed abroad upon the sea for miles and miles. Ahead, astern, this side, and that, within the wide expanded circle commanded at so great a height. When in working with his hands at some lofty, almost isolated place in the rigging, which chances to afford no foothold, a sailor at sea is hoisted up to that spot, and sustained there by the rope under these circumstances. Its fastened end on deck is always given in strict charge to some one man who has the special watch of it, because in such a wilderness of running rigging, whose various different relations aloft cannot always be infallibly discerned by what is seen of them on the deck, and when the deck ends of these ropes are being every few minutes cast down from the fastenings, it would be but a natural fatality if... Unprovided with a constant watchman, the hoisted sailors should by some carelessness of the crew be cast adrift and fall all swooping to the sea. So Ahab's proceedings in this matter were not unusual. The only strange thing about them seemed to be that Starbuck, almost the one only man who had ever ventured to oppose him with anything in the slightest degree approaching to decision, one of those two whose faithfulness on the lookout he had seemed to doubt somewhat, It was strange that this was the very man he should select for his watchman, freely giving his whole life into such an otherwise distrusted person's hands. Now, the first time Ahab was perched aloft, ere he had been there ten minutes, one of those red-billed savage seahawks which so often fly incommodiously close round the manned mastheads of whalemen in these latitudes, one of these birds came wheeling and screaming round his head in a maze of untrackably swift circles. Then it darted a thousand feet straight up in the air, then spiralized downwards and went eddying again round his head. But with his gaze fixed upon the dim and distant horizon, Ahab seemed not to mark this wild bird, nor, indeed, would anyone else have marked it much, it being no uncommon circumstance, only now almost the least heedful eye seemed to see some sort of cunning meaning in almost every sight. Your hat, your hat, sir," suddenly cried the Sicilian seaman, who being posted at the mizzenmast-head stood directly behind Ahab, though somewhat lower than his level, and with a deep gulf of air dividing them. But already the sable wing was before the old man's eyes, the long, hooked bill at his head. With a scream, the black hawk darted away with its prize. An eagle flew thrice round Tarquin's head, removing his cap to replace it, and thereupon Tanaquil, his wife, declared that Tarquin would be king of Rome. But only by replacing of the cap was that omen accounted good. Ahab's hat was never restored. The wild hawk flew on and on with it, far in advance of the prow, and at last disappeared, while from the point of that disappearance a minute black spot was dimly discerned, falling from that vast height into the sea. Chapter 131 The Pequod Meets the Delight the intense Pequod sailed on, the rolling waves and days went by, the life-buoy coffin still lightly swung, and another ship, most miserably named the Delight, was described. As she drew nigh, all eyes were fixed upon her broad beams, called shears, which in some whaling ships crossed the quarter deck at the height of eight or nine feet, serving to carry the spare, unrigged, or disabled boats. Upon the stranger's shears were beheld the shattered white ribs and some few splintered planks of what had once been a whaleboat, but you now saw through this wreck as plainly as you see through the peeled, half-unhinged, and bleached skeleton of a horse. "'Has seen the white whale!' "'Look!' replied the hollow-cheeked captain from his taffrail, and with his trumpet he pointed to the wreck. "'Has killed him!' "'The harpoon is not yet forged that will ever do that!' answered the other, sadly glancing upon the rounded hammock on the deck, whose gathered sides some noiseless sailors were busy in sewing together. Not forged! And snatching Perth's leveled iron from the crotch, Ahab held it out, exclaiming, Look ye, Nantucketer, here in this hand I hold his death!
1: Tempered in blood and tempered by lightning are the barbs, and I swear to temper them triply in that hot place behind the fin, where the white whale feels his most accursed life.
0: Then God keep thee, old man, seest thou that, pointing to the hammock, I bury but one of five stout men who were alive only yesterday, but the dead ere night. Only that one I bury, the rest were buried before they died. You sail upon their tomb, then, turning to his crew, are ye ready there? Place the plank then on the rail, lift the body so and then, oh God, advancing toward the hammock with uplifted hands, may the resurrection and the life brace forward up helm! cried Ahab, like lightning to his men, but the suddenly started pequod was not quick enough to escape the sound of the splash that the corpse made soon as it struck the sea. Not so quick indeed, but that some of the flying bubbles might have sprinkled her hull with their ghostly baptism. As Ahab now glided from the dejected delight, the strange life-buoy hanging from the Pequod's stern came into conspicuous relief. Ho, yonder, look men!' cried a foreboding voice in his wake. "'In vain, O ye strangers! You fly our sad burial! Ye but turn us your taffrail to show us your coffin. Chapter 132 The Symphony It was a clear, steel-blue day. The firmaments of air and sea were hardly separable in that all-pervading azure. Only the pensive air was transparently pure and soft, with a woman's look and the robust and manlike sea heaved with long, strong, lingering swells, as Samson's chest in his sleep. Hither and thither on high glided the snow-white wings of small, unspeckled birds. These were the gentle thoughts of the feminine air, but to and fro in the deeps, far down in the bottomless blue, rushed mighty leviathans, swordfish, and sharks, and these were the strong, troubled, murderous thinkings of the masculine sea. But though thus contrasting within, the contrast was only in shades and shadows without. These two seemed one. It was only the sex, as it were, that distinguished them. Aloft, like a royal czar and king, the sun seemed, giving this gentle air to this bold and rolling sea, even as bride to groom. And at the girdling line of the horizon, a soft and tremulous motion, most seen here at the equator, denoted the fond, throbbing trust, the loving arms with which the poor bride gave her bosom away. Tied up and twisted, gnarled and knotted with wrinkles, haggardly firm and unyielding, his eyes glowing like coals that still glow in the ashes of ruin, untottering Ahab stood forth in the clearness of the morn, lifting his splintered helmet of a brow to the fair girl's forehead of heaven. O immortal infancy and innocency of the azure! Invisible winged creatures that frolic all round us, sweet childhood of air and sky, how oblivious were ye of old Ahab's close-coiled woe! But so have I seen little Miriam and Martha, laughing-eyed elves, heedlessly gamble around their old sire, sporting with the circle of singed locks which grew on the marge of that burnt-out crater of his brain. Slowly crossing the deck from the scuttle, Ahab leaned over the side and watched how his shadow in the water sank and sank to his gaze the more and the more that he strove to pierce the profundity. But the lovely aromas in that enchanted air did at last seem to dispel, for a moment, the cankerous thing in his soul. That glad, happy air, that winsome sky did at last stroke and caress him, the stepmother world so long cruel, forbidding, now threw affectionate arms round his stubborn neck and did seem to joyously sob over him, as if over one that however willful and erring she could yet find in her heart to save and to bless. From beneath his slouched hat Ahab dropped a tear into the sea. Nor did all the Pacific contain such wealth as that one we drop. Starbuck saw the old man, saw him, how he heavily leaned over the side, and he seemed to hear in his own true heart the measureless sobbing that stole out of the center of the serenity around. Careful not to touch him or be noticed by him, he yet drew near to him and stood there. Ahab turned. Starbuck! Sir? Oh, Starbuck, it is a
1: mild, mild wind, and a mild-looking sky on such a day. Very much such a sweetness as this, I struck my first whale a boy harpooner of eighteen, forty, forty, forty years ago, ago. Forty years of continual wailing, forty years of privation and peril, and storm time. Forty years on the pitiless sea. For forty years has Ahab forsaken the peaceful land. For forty years to make war on the horrors of the deep. Aye, and yes, Starbuck. Out of those forty years I have not spent three ashore. When I think of this life I have led, the desolation of my solitude it has been. A mason walled town of a captain's exclusiveness, which admits but small entrance to any sympathy from the green country without. Oh, weariness! heaviness, skinny-coast slavery of solitary command. When I think of all this, only half-suspected, not so keenly known to me before, and how for forty years I have fed upon dry, salted fare, bit emblem of the dry nourishment of my soul, when the poorest landsman has had fresh fruit in his daily hand and broken the world's fresh bread to my moldy crusts. Away! Whole oceans away from that young girl-wife I wedded past fifty, and sailed for Cape Horn the next day, leaving but one dent in my marriage pillow. Wife! Wife! Rather a widow to her husband alive. Aye, I widowed that poor girl when I married her, Starbuck, and then the madness, the frenzy, the boiling blood, and the smoking brow with which for a thousand lowerings, old Ahab has furiously, foamingly chased his prey, more a demon than a man. Hi, hi! What a forty years fool, fool, old fool, has a old Ahab been? Why this strife at the chase? Why weary and palsy the arm at the oar and the iron and the lance? How the richer or better is Ahab now? Behold, O oh Starbuck,
0: is it not hard?
1: that with this weary load I bear, one poor leg should have been snatched from under me. Here, brush this old hair aside. It blinds me, that I seem to weep, locks so grey did never grow but from out some ashes. But do I look very old, so very, very old, Starbuck? I feel deadly faint, bowed and humped as though I were Adam, staggering beneath the piled centuries since paradise. God! God! god crack my heart stave my brain mockery mockery bitter biting mockery of great hairs have i lived enough joy to wear ye and seem and feel thus intolerably old close stand close to me starbuck let me look into a human eye it is better than to gaze into sea or sky, better than to gaze upon God. By the green land, by the bright hearthstone, this is that magic glass, man. I see my wife and my child in thine eye. No, no,
0: stay on board, on board.
1: Lower not when I do. When branded Ahab gives chase to Moby Dick, that hazard shall not be thine. No, no, not with the far away home I see in that eye.
0: Oh, my cap'n. My captain, noble soul, grand old heart, after all. Why should any one give chase to that hated fish? Away with me, let us fly these deadly waters, let us home. Wife and child, too, are Starbucks, wife and child of his brotherly, sisterly, playfellow youth. Even as thine, sir, are the wife and child of thy loving, longing, paternal old age. Away, let us away. This instant let me all to the course. How cheerily, how hilariously, oh my captain, would we bowl on our way to see old Nantucket again? I think, sir, they have such mild blue days, even as this in Nantucket. They have, they have, I've seen them.
1: Some summer days in the morning. About this time. yes. "'It is his noon nap now. "'The boy vivaciously wakes, sits up in bed, "'and his mother tells him of me. Oh, old cannibal me, how I am abroad upon the deep, "'but will yet come back to dance him again.
0: Tis my Mary, my Mary herself. "'She promised that my boy every morning "'should be carried to the hill "'to catch first glimpse of his father's sail. "'Yes, yes, no more. It is done. "'We head for Nantucket. Come, my captain. "'Steady out the course and let us away. "'See, See, the boy's face from the window, the boy's hand on the hill. But Ahab's glance was averted. Like a blighted fruit tree he shook and cast his last cindered apple to the soil. What is it, that
1: nameless, inscrutable, unearthly thing is it? What cozening, hidden lord and master and cruel, remorseless emperor commands me that against all natural lovings and longings I so keep pushing and crowding and jamming myself on all the time? recklessly making me ready to do what in my own proper natural heart I durst not so much as dare. Is Ahab Ahab? Is it I? God? Or who that lifts this arm? But if the great sun move not of himself, but is an errand-boy in heaven. Nor one single star can revolve, but by some invisible power. How can this one small heart beat, this one small brain think thoughts, unless God does that beating, does that thinking, does that living, and not I? By heaven, man, we are turned round and round in this world, like yonder windless, and fate is the handspike, and all the time, lo, that smiling sky and this unsounded sea. Look, see yon albacore! Who put it into him to chase and fang that flying fish? Where do murderers go, man? Who's to doom when the judge himself is dragged to the bar? But it is a mild, mild wind, and a mild-looking sky and the air smells now as if it blew from a far-away meadow. They have been making hay somewhere under the slopes of the Andes, Starbuck, and the mowers are sleeping among the new-mown hay. Sleeping? Hey, toil we how we may. We all sleep at last in the field. Sleep? High and rust amid greenness as last year's scythes are flung down and left in the half-cut swaths. Starbuck!
0: but blanched to a corpse's hue with despair the mate had stolen away. Ahab crossed the deck to gaze over on the other side, but startled at two reflected fixed eyes in the water there, Fadala was motionlessly leaning over the same rail. Chapter 133 The Chase First Day that night in the mid-watch when the old man as his wont at intervals stepped forth from the scuttle in which he leaned and went to his pivot hole he suddenly thrust out his face fiercely snuffling up the sea air as a sagacious ship's dog will in drawing nigh to some barbarous isle he declared that a whale must be near Soon, that peculiar odor, sometimes to a great distance given forth by the living sperm whale, was palpable to all the watch. Nor was any mariner surprised when, after inspecting the compass and then the dog vein and then ascertaining the precise bearing of the odor as nearly as possible, Ahab rapidly ordered the ship's course to be slightly altered and the sail to be shortened. The acute policy dictating these movements was sufficiently vindicated at daybreak by the sight of a long sleek on the sea directly and lengthwise ahead, smooth as oil and resembling in the pleated watery wrinkles bordering it the polished metallic-like marks of some swift tide-rip at the mouth of a deep rapid stream. Man THE mustheads, CALL ALL HANDS! Thundering with the butts of three clubbed handspikes in the forecastle deck, Dago roused the sleepers with such judgment claps that they seemed to exhale from the scuttle, so instantaneously did they appear with their clothes in their hands. "'What do you see?' cried Ahab, flattening his face to the sky. "'Nothing! Nothing, sir!' was the sound, hailing down a reply. "'To Galinsels! Stunsels and aloft on both sides!' All sail being set, he now cast loose the lifeline reserved for swaying him to the main royal masthead, and in a few moments they were hoisting him thither, when, while but two thirds of the way aloft, and while peering ahead through the horizontal vacancy between the main topsail and the top gallant sail, he raised a gull like cry in the air There she blows there she blows a hump like a snow hill it is Moby Dick Fired by the cry which seemed simultaneously taken up by the three lookouts, the men on deck rushed to the rigging to behold the famous whale they had so long been pursuing. Ahab had now gained his final perch some feet above the other lookouts, Tashtigo standing just beneath him on the cap of the tagallant mast, so that the Indian's head was almost on a level with Ahab's heel. From this height the whale was now seen some mile or so ahead at every roll of the sea revealing his high sparkling hump and regularly jetting his silent spout into the air. To the credulous mariners it seemed the same silent spout they had so long ago beheld in the moonlit Atlantic and Indian Oceans. "'And did none of ye see it before?' cried Ahab, hailing the perched men all around him. "'I saw him almost that same instant, sir, that Captain Ahab did, and I cried out,' said Tashtigo. "'Not the same instant, not the same, no.
1: The doubloon is mine. "'Fate reserved the doubloon for me, I only. "'None of ye could have raised the white whale first. "'There she blows, there she blows, there
0: she blows! "'There again, there again!' he cried, "'in long, lingering, methodic tones "'attuned to the gradual prolongings "'of the whale's visible jets. "'He's going to sound! "'In stunsils, down top Send
1: "'Stand by three boats, Mr. Starbuck. "'Remember, stay on board and keep the ship. "'Helm there, luff, luff to a point!' so steady men steady there go flukes no no only black water already the boat's there stand by stand by
0: lower me mr starbuck lower lower quick quicker and he slid through the air to the deck
1: he's heading straight to leeward, sir cried stub right away from us cannot have seen the ship yet be dumb, man stand by the braces hard down the helm brace up shiver shiver her so well that
0: boats boats soon all the boats but starbucks were dropped all the boats set all the paddles plying with the rippling swiftness shooting to leeward and Ahab heading the onset. A pale death glimmer lit up Fidala's sunken eyes, a hideous motion gnawed his mouth. Like noiseless nautilus shells, their light prows sped through the sea, but only slowly they neared the foe. As they neared him the ocean grew still more smooth, seemed drawing a carpet over its waves, seemed a noon meadow so serenely it spread. At length, the breathless hunter came so nigh his seemingly unsuspecting prey that his entire dazzling hump was distinctly visible, sliding along the sea as if an isolated thing, and continually set in a revolving ring of finest fleecy greenish foam. He saw the vast, involved wrinkles of the slightly projecting head beyond, before it far out on the soft Turkish rugged waters went the glistening white shadow from his broad, milky forehead, a musical rippling playfully accompanying the shade, and behind the blue waters interchangeably flowed over into the moving valley of his steady wake, and on either hand bright bubbles arose and danced by his side but these were broken again by the light toes of hundreds of gay fowl softly feathering the sea alternate with their fitful flight and like to some flagstaff ra- rising from the painted hull of an Argosy, the tall but shattered pole of a recent lance projecting from the white whale's back, and at intervals one of the cloud of soft-toed fowls hovering and to and fro skimming like a canopy over the fish silently perched and rocked on this pole, the long tail feathers streaming like penions. A gentle joyousness, a mighty mildness of repose and swiftness invested the gliding whale, not the white bull Jupiter, swimming away with ravished Europa clinging to his graceful horns, his lovely leering eyes sideways intent upon the maid with smooth bewitching fleetness, rippling straight for the nuptial bower in Crete, not Jove, not that great Majesty Supreme did surpass the glorified white whale as he so divinely swam. On each soft side, coincident with the parted swell, that, but once leaving him, then flowed so wide away, on each bright side the whale shed off enticings. No wonder there had been some among the hunters who, namelessly transported and allured by all this serenity, had ventured to assail it, but had fatally found that quietude but the vesture of tornadoes, yet calm, enticing calm. O whale, thou glidest on to all who for the first time eye thee, no matter how many in the same way thou mayest have be juggled and destroyed before. And thus, Through the serene tranquillities of the tropical sea among waves whose hand clappings were suspended by exceeding rapture, Moby Dick moved on, still withholding from sight the full terrors of his submerged trunk, entirely hiding the wretched hideousness of his jaw. But soon the forepart of him slowly rose from the water. For an instant his whole marbleized body forming a high arch like Virginia's natural bridge and warningly waving his bannered flukes in the air, the grand god revealed himself, sounded, and went out of sight. Hoveringly halting and dipping on the wing, the white sea-fowls longingly lingered over the agitated pool that he left with oars apeak and paddles down the sheets of their sails adrift the three boats now stillly floated awaiting moby dick's reappearance an hour said ahab standing rooted in his boat's stern and he gazed beyond the whale's place toward the dim blue spaces and wide wooing vacancies to leeward It was only an instant, for again his eyes seemed whirling round in his head as he swept the watery circle. The breeze now freshened, the sea began to swell. The birds! The birds! cried Tashtiko. In long Indian file, as when herons take wing, the white birds were now flying towards Ahab's boat, and when within a few yards began fluttering over the water there, wheeling round and round with joyous, expectant cries, their vision was no keener than man's. Ahab could discover no sign in the sea. But suddenly, as he peered down and down into the depths, he profoundly saw a white living spot, no bigger than a white weasel, with wonderful celerity uprising and magnifying as it rose, till it turned and then there were plainly revealed two long crooked rows of white glistening teeth, floating up from the undiscoverable bottom. It was Moby Dick's open mouth and scrolled jaw, his vast shadowed bulk still half blending with the blue of the sea the glittering mouth yawned beneath the boat like an open-doored marble tomb and giving one sidelong sweep from his steering oar ahab whirled the craft aside from the tremendous apparition then calling upon Fidullah to change places with him went forward to the bows and seizing perth's harpoon commanded his crew to grasp their oars and stand by to stern Now, by reason of this timely spinning round of the boat upon its axis, its bow, by anticipation, was made to face the whale's head while yet under water. But, as if perceiving this stratagem, Moby Dick, with that malicious intelligence ascribed to him, sidlingly transplanted himself, as it were, in an instant, shooting his pleated head lengthwise beneath the boat. Through and through, through every plank and each rib it thrilled for an instant, the whale obliquely lying on his back in the manner of a biting shark, slowly and feelingly taking its bows full within his mouth, so that the long, narrow, scrolled lower jaw curled high up into the open air and one of the teeth caught in a rowlock. The bluish-pearl-white of the inside of the jaw was within six inches of Ahab's head and reached higher than that. In this attitude, the white whale now shook the slight cedar as a mildly cruel cat, her mouse. With unastonished eyes, Fadala gazed and crossed his arms, but the tiger-yellow crew were tumbling over each other's heads to gain the uttermost stern. And now, while both elastic gunwales were springing in and out as the whale dallied with the doomed craft in this devilish way, and from his body being submerged beneath the boat, he could not be darted at from the bows, for the bows were almost inside of him, as it were, and while the other boats involuntarily paused as before a quick crisis impossible to withstand, then it was that monomaniac Ahab, furious with this tantalizing vicinity of his foe, which placed him all alive and helpless in the very jaws he hated, Frenzied with all this, he seized the long bone from his naked hands and wildly strove to wrench it from its grip. As now he thus vainly strove, the jaw slipped from him, the frail gunwales bent in, collapsed and snapped, as both jaws, like an enormous shear sliding further aft, bit the craft completely in twain and locked themselves fast again in the sea, midway between the two floating wrecks. These floated aside, the broken ends drooping, the crew of the stern wreck clinging to the gunwales and striving to hold fast to the oars to lash them across. At that preluding moment, ere the boat was yet snapped, Ahab, the first to perceive the whale's intent by the crafty upraising of his head, a movement that loosed his hold for the time, at that moment his hand had made one final effort to push the boat out of the bite, but only slipping further into the whale's mouth, and tilting over sideways as it slipped, the boat had shaken off its hold in the jaw, spilled him out of it as he leaned to the push, so he fell flat-faced upon the sea. Ripplingly withdrawing from his prey, Moby Dick now lay at a little distance, and vertically thrusting his oblong white head up and down in the billows, and at the same time slowly revolving his whole spindled body, so that when his vast wrinkled forehead rose some twenty or more feet out of the water, and now rising swells with all their confluent waves dazzlingly broke against it, vindictively tossing their shivered spray still higher into the air. Footnote. This motion is peculiar to the sperm whale. It receives its designation, pitch-polling, from its being likened to that preliminary up-and-down poise of the whale lance in the exercise called pitch-polling previously described. By this motion, the whale must best and most comprehensively view whatever objects may be encircling him. And footnote. So, in a gale, the but half-baffled channel billows only recoil from the base of the eddy stone, triumphantly to overleap its summit with their scud. But soon resuming his horizontal attitude, Moby Dick swam swiftly round and round the wrecked crew, sideways churning the water in his vengeful wake, as if lashing himself up to still another and more deadly assault. The sight of the splintered boat seemed to madden him as the blood of grapes and mulberries cast before Antiochus' elephants in the Book of Maccabees. Meanwhile, Ahab, half smothered in the foam of the whale's insolent tail and too much of a cripple to swim, though he could still keep afloat, even in the heart of such a whirlpool as that, helpless Ahab's head was seen like a tossed bubble which the least chance shock might burst. From the boat's fragmentary stern, Fidala incredulously and mildly eyed him. The clinging crew at the other drifting end could not succor him more than enough was it for them to look for themselves. For so revolvingly appalling was the white whale's aspect, and so planetarily swift the ever-contracting circles he made, that he seemed horizontally swooping upon them, and though the other boats, unharmed, still hovered hard by, still they dared not pull into the eddy to strike, lest that should be the signal for the instant destruction of the jeopardized castaway ahab and all not in that case could they themselves hope to escape with straining eyes then they remained on the outer edge of the direful zone whose center had now become the old man's head Meanwhile, from the beginning, all this had been described from the ship's mastheads, and squaring her yards, she had borne down upon the scene, and was now so nigh that Ahab in the water hailed her. SAIL ON THEE! But the moment a breaking sea dashed over him that from Moby Dick and whelmed him for the time, but struggling out of it again and chancing to rise on the towering crest, he shouted, SAIL ON THE whale! DRIVE HIM OFF! The Pequod's prows were pointed, and, breaking up the charmed circle, she effectually parted the white whale from his victim. As he sullenly swam off, the boats flew to the rescue. Dragged into Stubb's boat with bloodshot-blinded eyes, the white brine caking in his wrinkles, the long tension of Ahab's bodily strength did crack, and helplessly he yielded to his body's doom for a time, lying all crushed in the bottom of Stubb's boat like one trodden underfoot of herds of elephants. Far inland nameless wails came from him as desolate sounds from out of ravines. But this intensity of his physical prostration did but so much the more abbreviate him. In an instant's compass great hearts sometimes condense in one deep pang, the sum total of those shallow pains kindly diffused through feebler men's whole lives. And so such hearts, though summary in each one's suffering, still, if the gods decree it, in their lifetime aggregate a whole age of woe, wholly made up of instantaneous intensities, for even in their pointless centers those noble natures contain the entire circumference of inferior souls. That harpoon, said Ahab, halfway rising and draggingly leaning on one bended arm, is it safe? sir, for has not darted, that it is,' said Stubb,
1: showing it. "'Lay it before me. Any missing men? One, two, three, four, five. "'There are five oars, sir, and there are five men.' "'That's good. Help me, man, I wish to stand. "'So, so, I see him. There, there, going to leeward still. "'What a leaping spout. Hands off from me. "'The eternal sap runs up in Ahab's bones
0: again. "'Set the sail. Out oars the helm!' It is often a case that when a boat is stove, its crew being picked up by another boat helped to work that second boat and the chase is thus continued with what is now called double-banked oars. It was thus now. But the added power of the boat did not equal the added power of the whale, for he seemed to have trouble banked his every fin, swimming with a velocity which plainly showed that if now, under these circumstances, pushed on, the chase would prove an indefinitely prolonged, if not a hopeless one. Nor could any crew endure so long a period, such an unintermitted, intense straining at the oar, a thing barely tolerable only in some one brief vicissitude. The ship itself then, as it sometimes happens, offered the most promising intermediate means of overtaking the chase. Accordingly, the boats now made for her, and were soon swayed up to their cranes, the two parts of the wrecked boat having been previously secured to her. And then, hoisting everything to her side and stacking her canvas high up and sideways outstretching it with her stunsels like the double-jointed wings of an albatross, the Pequod bore down in the leeward wake of Moby Dick. At the well-known, methodic intervals, the whale's glittering spout was regularly announced to the manned mastheads, and when he would be reported as just gone down, Ahab would take the time, and then, pacing the deck, binnacle watch in hand, so soon as the last second of the allotted hour expired, his voice was heard, "'Whose is the doubloon now? Do you see him?' And if the reply was, "'No, sir!' straightway he commanded them to lift him up to his perch. In this way the day wore on, Ahab now aloft and motionless, anon unrestingly pacing the planks. As he was thus walking, uttering no sound except to hail the men aloft, or to bid them hoist a sail still higher, or to spread one to a still greater breadth, thus to and fro pacing beneath his slouched hat at every turn he passed his own wrecked boat, which had been dropped upon the quarter deck and lay there reversed, broken bow to shattered stern. At last he paused before it, and as in an already overclouded sky, fresh troops of clouds will sometimes sail across, so over the old man's face there now stole some such added gloom as this. Stubbs saw him pause, and perhaps intending, not vainly, though, to evince his own unabated fortitude, and thus keep up a valiant place in his captain's mind, he advanced, and, eyeing the wreck, exclaimed, The thistle the ass
1: refused.
0: It bricked his mouth too keenly, sir. <laughs>
1: what soulless thing is this that laughs before a wreck man man did i not know thee brave as fearless fire and as mechanical i could swear thou wert a poltroon groan nor laugh should be heard
0: before a wreck ay sir said starbuck drawing near tis a solemn sight an omen and an ill one Omen,
1: omen, the dictionary. If the gods think to speak outright to man, they will honorably speak outright, not shake their heads and give an old wife's darkling hint. Begone! Ye two are the opposite poles of one thing. Starbuck is stub reversed, and stub is starbuck, and ye two are all mankind, and Ahab stands alone among the millions of the peopled earth, nor gods nor men his neighbors. Cold! Cold I shiver, how now? Aloft there the Asium
0: Sing out for every spout those be sp- spout ten times a second The day was nearly done, only the hem of his golden robe was rustling. Soon it was almost dark, but the lookout men still remained unset. Can't see the spout now, sir. Too dark cried a voice from the air. Ho, heading when last seen As before, sir, straight to
1: Leeward Good. He will travel slower now tis night. Down royals and top-gallant stunsels, Mr. Starbuck. We must not run over him before morning. He's making a passage now. May heave to a while. Helm there. Keep her full before the wind. Aloft, come down, Mr. Sub. Send a fresh hand to the foremast head and see it man till morning.
0: Then, advancing toward the doubloon in the mainmast, Men,
1: this gold is mine,
0: for I earned
1: it. But I shall let it abide here till the white whale is dead, and then whosoever of ye first raises him upon the day he shall be killed, this gold is that man's, and if that day I shall again raise him, then ten times its sun shall be divided
0: among all of ye. Away now, the deck is thine, sir. And so saying, he placed himself halfway within the scuttle, and slouching his hat, stood there till dawn, except when at intervals rousing himself to see how the night wore on. Thanks for listening to this week's penultimate episode of Strangely's Moby Dick. If you have comments, questions, or would like to purchase the full audiobook of this project right away and skip ahead to find out how it all ends, please send an email to saftp at tuta.io. That's saftp at tuta.io. This project was supported by a distinguished group of wonderful patrons. Visit patreon.com strangely to learn more about how you can aid my ongoing attempts to amuse, inform, and occasionally mystify. I'll see you all in two weeks for The Conclusion.